0: 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed.
1: Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan and Cassidy
0: Zachary. Today, I ask you, dressed listeners, what is your earliest memory of clothing? Or can you remember the first time that clothing really meant something to you? I would venture to guess that everyone has at least one piece of clothing that is special from their formative years. I know that one of mine is this black 1950s inspired tool dress that I wore to my senior prom. Um, it has this beautiful little um, crystal brooch at the waist. And I just, I still remember how beautiful I felt when I wore it, which probably explains why I still have it in my closet. <laughs> <laughs> through all these years.
1: <laughs> now I think we all need to see a
0: photo of it. I wonder if I still have it, actually. I should try to pull that out. You're right. Um, what about <laughs> you, April? Um,
1: I think mine would have to be like this Barely their red silk slip halter dress, um, and I wore it on New Year's Eve in LA back in the late 90s, and and the silk just kind of like flows around the body. It's, it's quite sexy. And, you know, I've, I've worn it out and about several times and had some very fun evenings in that
0: dress. Sounds fun and beautiful. Um, any pictures of that? Oh, maybe. <laughs> Heading back down memory lane today.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly.
0: So aside from the random foray into the vintage inspired, my teen years were very much informed by this style that was part Clueless, which is my all-time favorite film, by the way. Um, part <laughs> Hollister, Abercrombie and Fitch meets the film The Craft. <laughs>
1: also one of the best movies ever made. Hell uh, to the Watchtowers of the East. Yes,
0: yes. So let's just say the late 1990s, early 2000s. Yeah. Um, But whatever generation we grew up in, I would wager that we can all remember the styles of clothing that defined our youth, from the covetable and cool to the downright bizarre.
1: Now, imagine if you had all of these clothing pieces still in your closet, or that those clothing pieces numbered over 20,000, spanning not only your youth, but youth street styles spanning half a century. Well, now you would have the collection of Roger Burton, who is the owner of Contemporary Wardrobe, which is a specialty rental company specializing in vintage street
0: fashion dating from 1947 all the way up until today. Yeah, and a vintage collector for over 50 years, Roger is a street style aficionado. He's a costume designer, a stylist, and a former mod, and he's compiled this amazing collection. And it's particularly special because he is... If not someone who necessarily wore all the styles of clothing that he's collected over the years, he bore witness to them. And he wasn't just a passive observer either, but someone who actually possessed
1: and still possesses a genuine passion and appreciation for youth culture and the importance of street fashion. And, you know, it is something that is really beautifully celebrated in his book, Rebel Threads, The Clothing of the Bad, Beautiful, and Misunderstood. So we are thrilled today to have Roger with us all the way from London. Welcome,
0: Roger. Welcome, Roger.
2: Well, thank you very much, Cassidy. It's very nice to be here.
0: Yeah, and I, I actually have to give a special shout out to our mutual friend and fellow costume designer, Daniela Moore, because without her, this conversation would not be happening. She showed me your wonderful book.
2: Oh, <laughs> yeah, she's, she's great, Daniela. She, I, we, we had a great time working on a film a few years ago
0: yeah and i I have to just say congratulations on this book. You can really tell that it's a labor of love for you, and the fact that you can contextualize a lot of these pieces in your collection within a history that you yourself experienced is really special, and you really have an incredible collection and I really want to know what inspired you to begin collecting
2: well i think uh um, deep down i've al- well I've always been a collector uh you know since being a child um I've sort of collected things but it was partly to do with being uh, a mod and uh, in in the 60s and not really kind of having quite enough money to buy exactly what I wanted to buy at that time. And so when vintage clothes started to become fashionable, uh, that I was able to afford. And um, I thought a lot of this stuff was never going to be seen again. And um, I'm quite a, a big guy. Um, um, English people tend to be a lot smaller, or at least they did in 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 the 1940s and 50s. And so I, I really treasured stuff that would fit me, and a, a lot of a lot of my personal collection at the time was American.
0: And a lot of that stuff came over with the war, right? With World War Two.
2: Well, actually, before the war, a lot of it was uh, brought over by well, American servicemen during the war, but before the war, there was all the ocean liners going backwards and forwards from London to, or Southampton to New York. And um, they used to have these, like, travelling bands, uh, orchestras and jazz bands that would play on the ship. And these characters obviously had to dress up, and, and you know, what better place to, to find outrageous stuff than New York? and so they were you know bringing stuff back to england and there was there were a couple of designers who um at the time who were very inspired by american clothes and um one of them was cecil g and um he he actually started a shop called uh cecil g the american tailor and um there used to be queues around the block for for his clothes and this was just prior to the war and just after the war. And so, yeah, American style clothing was massively popular in England.
0: Yeah, and I'm really curious to know what role memory and nostalgia played in this collection and in your collecting process. I know a lot of what you collected is from an era of your youth, a time in which you're an active participant. But I also think you wrote in the book that some of the first things you collected were your grandfather's ties.
2: Yeah, Um well, only because it, it it was kind of accessible. I mean, my my grandfather was a builder. He was, you know, he had his Sunday best um, outfit that he would wear on a on a Sunday, his suits and stuff. And he was, he was he was a lot smaller than me. But the one thing he did have was very good taste in ties, from the nineteen twenties and thirties and forties. And um yeah, I, I raided um, you know, his his wardrobe to wear with with the suits that I was picking up on markets and those sort of places. So there was a kind of yeah, a nostalgia. Um and I also I grew up um watching old movies, you know, on TV because that's you know, I lived in the country, I lived in on a farm and a lot of my fashion education came via watching old old black and white movies from the from the 40s and 50s
0: yeah and so the book features over 1000 examples of rare vintage clothing from your collection focused primarily on the street style of teenage subcultures from the 40s to the 80s and when you write about street style, and more specifically youth street style, what specifically are you referring to, and how is this type of clothing different than, say, mainstream fashion? To me,
2: street style is, is clothing that has come up through the streets. It's it's stuff that, basically, before the word stylist was ever uh, created, or at least before it was used in 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 the in the way it's used now, kids were being stylists. They were picking. Uh, stuff from high street stores, from little back street stores, from fashion designers, from wherever, and putting it together and creating their own style. And this started, you know, way back, you know, in in the 1950s. And um, it generally kind of went alongside a fashionable music that was happening at the time. And so the, the things, you know, one kind of worked off of the other. It was, it was the fashion and the music that kind of worked together. But it was very unlike anything you could get in a, in a mainstream store.
0: Yeah, and your book addresses very distinctive subcultures of young people and the types of clothing that they wore, and for which rebellion and the bucking of societal rules and regulations are quite common themes. But so too is the fact that clothing and music as well, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. But clothing is incredibly integral to and in some cases synonymous with these young people's identity. And I can think of no better case than that, than of the Mexican-American pachuco subculture, which infamously adopted the zoot suit in the World War II era. So can you tell us what was the zoot suit, and why was the wearing of this garment so incredibly controversial?
2: Well, it's interesting um, uh, that whole zoot suit thing, because it... it, it well, allegedly, it came out of Harlem with you know people like Malcolm X, etc., wearing wearing this overlong style. Basically, it was the jacket was like a frock coat. In in other words, it was kind of almost knee length, and um, with these kind of voluminous uh, uh, peg top trousers, uh, all gathered, you know, tight at, at the at the, um, at the cuff, and I mean, a lot a lot of the press referred to them as looking like clowns. And I think a lot of his Hispanic and, and, and West Indian kids really kind of rose to that and wanted to kind of um, It became their sort of look with the rise of the kind of jazz age in, in the mid 30s and all those jazz bands that were around and amazing black musicians. Um, Cab Calloway obviously was, you know, became the kind of, uh, uh, the person who was, who was wearing the style and, and all the kids wanted to emulate him. And, um, it became like a real thing among them. They were, they were known as novelty suits, uh, among tailors and, um, novelty styles. And they were worn by kids who followed jazz bands, basically. And, during the war, or when when America entered the war, they brought about rationing, as as they did in this country, in the UK and Paris and so on and so forth. But in, in America, they brought about uh, uh, this rationing. And the government stated that excess use of cloth in suiting was, was to be banned. And um, it's like you couldn't have a cuff on a trouser. Uh, you couldn't have pleats. You couldn't have too much excess cloth in the sleeve there was all kinds of rules and regulations but the kids wanted to carry on wearing this stuff and um and so they were seen as very unpatriotic but tailors kind of continued to to make it because the demand was so high and, and eventually of course it turned into the um you know the zoot suit riots with uh, in in los angeles with uh, you know marines kind of really you know coming back from the war and sort of really taking offense to to these kids Flaunting these oversized suits, you know, when when they would, then they should have been banned.
0: Yeah, because these young people are really threatening, you know, the status quo, and they're outside of the norm. And for whatever reason, that historically and til- still today still really terrifies people.
2: Yeah, 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 for sure.
0: And you actually have a zoot suit in your collection, and these are incredibly rare garments. Do you by chance know its provenance?
2: I have, I have one that was. I I bought it back in the 1970s. It was made by an English tailor, but it to an American pattern. And um, it was made in, I I think, probably 1947. And it was made for somebody, but it was never actually collected. And so it remained in the back of this tailor shop. And uh, well, until the 70s, until I discovered it. (laughs) And... and, um, it's yeah, it's it's a really great example that gets we we loan it to the uh, Museum of London all the time. You know, they've never they they haven't got one in their collection, and they 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 love to have it on display there. But it's a great example.
0: Yeah, and today we would hardly consider the wearing of a suit as an act of subversion. In fact, today it's arguably one of the most traditional and conservative of men's garments. And yet, from the '40s through the '60s, there are numerous subcultures. That adopted the suit as their uniform of rebellion. And this included the Zoot suit suitors, but also the teddy boys who emerged in post-World War II England. Can you speak to the importance of the suit to these young men specifically?
2: Yeah, I think particularly in England, between let's say the end of World War One and the end of World War Two, there was so we're talking what, 1918 to 1945. There was very, very little change in the style of a suit. You either had a single-breasted suit or a double-breasted suit, and it it had a wide leg. And um, it was totally traditional, and it it didn't change very much at all. It changed more in America than it did did in England. After the Second World War in England, there there was a competition Um, put out by by the Savile Row tailors who are very very traditional to come up with a, a new idea a new look basically for young men to wear because they didn't want to wear the clothes of their forefathers or the style the clothes styles of their forefathers I mean basically after the end of the war when servicemen, um, you know, who, whether in the uh, army or the navy, the British army or the British navy, they were given a suit from uh, government stock so that they could re-enter, you know, normal life again. And uh, of course, these suits were, had been made in the, a lot of them had been made in the 1930s, and so they were still a 1930s style, and they didn't want that anymore and they wanted to look like you know like something new you know it was after the war it was a new beginning and so this competition took place i think it was in 1949 um there was there was this new style uh suit created by uh, a, a group of tailors and it it was quite reminiscent to the zoot suit only it was a lot more refined a uh, lot less cloth in it very slim fitting and it was worn by Mostly by ex-British Guardsmen who used to frequent London exclusive London clubs. Of course, a lot of East End um, of London uh, working-class guys used to work in these clubs, and they must have seen uh, this new style, and and you know went back to East End tailors and. St- and said, well, you know, we want a bit of this. We want to look like this, but we want our, our, our own identity. And actually, the first uh, teddy boy suits that started looked very much like these guardsmen's suits to the point that Savile Row only made them for a few years because they, they were so outraged by the fact that these commoners, these, these working-class kids in, in the East End of London were copying their style as the style um evolved it became more more outrageous they they started to use colors and have velvet collars and you know with a drain pipe very tight trouser and and this was associated with this new rock and roll music that was coming over from the states bill haley and the comets and little richard and those sort of people And yeah, these kids got a really kind of bad name in the East End for wearing this look. And it was
0: known as New Edwardian, right? Because it was kind of based on this early 20th century Edwardian era style of suit with the long coat, right?
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah.
0: So we are going to take a brief sponsor break. But when we get back, more from Roger on the Teddy Boys. Welcome back. Roger, I think it's easy to associate these subcultures with young men, but young women were also active participants, such as the Pachucas in the 1940s and the androgynous Teddy Girls or Judys of the 1950s, both of which adopted the suits of their male contemporaries. How was clothing an act of transgression, but also expression for these young women?
2: Well, I think certainly with the, the zoot suit wearers, I, th- I think Latin American girls wanted to look like their male counterparts, but you know, it certainly had that flavor, and I, and it and, and it and it happened in this country as well with the, with the Teddy girls and the Judies. You know, they they didn't want to be left out. You know, they wanted to look as kind of tough as the boys. And um, it's interesting with with the with the girls in this country, unlike America, where um uh, i think you know a lot of the a lot of those zoot suit wearers it, i mean it was it was all tailor made they were they were made for those people or or they were bought in, as fashion items where in this country there was a lot of poor kids girls and guys who couldn't afford to have their suits made and so they would they would buy oversized clothes and um and get you know the mum or the you know somebody who was handy with the machine to kind of to cut them down to size to fit them but it's certainly with the girls there's a, there's a very famous uh, uh uh photograph in the book of uh, uh taken by ken russell of this girl it's 1955 and she's wearing a jacket from the 1940s but in a very kind of um rebellious way with with rolled jeans and a, and a little cameo brooch in her neck and stuff. And she looks really tough.
0: Yeah, it's a wonderful image. And um, the transgression of these young women is almost more remarkable than that of their male contemporaries because of women's place in society at this time. In the 40s and 50s, women, I feel like, are still very much being held to these traditional roles of wife and mother. So to see these young women you know, rebelling against this and choosing to demonstrate it through the clothing they wear is pretty remarkable.
2: Yeah, I think I think a lot of it is is to do with the, um, you know, with commerce in the in the it was after the after the Second World War. And, you know, everybody had to work, whereas traditionally, probably a lot of women, probably didn't work they probably got married quite young certainly in this country and um you know had kids and stuff whereas this teenage market after the war there was there was money around to build the country back up again and so there were these young teenage girls working away and they were getting you know, in some cases, as much as the, as much as the guys, and so they were able to, to you know, uh, invest in, in in fashion, and and also fashion was cheaper. It was it was becoming more widespread and cheaper to make. Uh, you know, with the use of of man-made fibres and stuff, there was a whole kind of revolution actually in in the clothing industry that that started in in the early fifties over here.
0: Yeah, and it's really interesting too, you kind of mentioned it. But um, you know, today teenage culture is such a predominant part of our society, but it's really in the post war period that, you know, this teenage culture really starts to emerge for the first time.
2: That's right. And and that's what really interested me about um collecting clothes from that period. I okay. I mean, I was I was born in nineteen forty nine, so I wasn't you know a teddy boy as it were but you know my sister was a little bit older than me and she she was very much a part of, of of that teddy boy teddy girl sort of uh rock and roll period Um she probably wasn't as extreme as some of those girls but um it all rubbed off on me you know i think you always you always value imagery and and impressions from from the uh from your childhood you know you you always kind of resort to them, for inspiration, I think.
0: Absolutely. And your book's really a testament to that in so many ways. And I love how in your book you paint pictures of not just what these young people were wearing, but the world in which they lived, what they were doing, how they acted. And this is a lifestyle in which clothing is incredibly integral. And I would also like to know, what role did competition play in the perpetuation of these styles? Because the Teddy Boys, for instance, you write... Would never go out for the evening unless they looked immaculate. Lots of time was spent combing their hair and getting the quiff just right. It's a really wonderful image to picture.
2: Uh, well, I guess you know it. it, it it's it's sort of teenage bravadery. You know, they all kind of they're all vying for, you know, attention. I mean, you know, the boys have got to look good because they want to attract the girls. The girls want to look, you know, they want to look great because they want to attract the boys. And so there is this kind of competition, which... I, I think it's always been always been around, but it was just it was a bit more heightened through that whole Teddy Boy thing, and there was and there was a great deal of competition between, you know, the guys uh, among themselves, you know, uh, and and certainly the girls as well.
0: You write that by 1956 the Teddy Boys were on the outs, and that by 1960 they had been replaced by the Mods is a culture within which you yourself were a active participant and I can't wait to hear all about the mods but first I'm hoping you can give us a little bit more insight into your childhood um do you by chance remember when you first became interested in clothing
2: yeah I like I said I, I was I was raised in a little village um uh, on a farm my parents were farmers and so I didn't really get out a lot um and um you know, it was a big thing to be able to go to, uh, like a fun fair or a carnival, which was, you know, maybe twice a year. And I would see, you know, the, the, the teenage kids around there that, that were, were a real influence. And of course, you know, I was, I was growing up, going going to these fun fairs hearing the loud music the rock and roll music and seeing these teddy boys and rockers and you know girls with amazing makeup and bouffant hair and stuff and it was a real kind of you know it really impressed me i was terrified by them but it was it really impressed me so i got that going on one hand and then you know these old kind of um gangster movies you know uh, on the tv uh that i was watching as well and i was just taking it all in i was really kind of um ob- obsessed with 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 style and stuff and then when Elvis came along wow I mean I I wanted to be part of that I you know joined his fan club and bought the records and and so on and that was my real you know my first kind of foray into wanting to be like somebody but I was too young basically I mean I I I tried I I had the quiff haircut I I think I had a suede jacket and um so I kind of looked a bit like that it wasn't until yeah, as you said, the mod thing happened that, that, that then I really found my feet.
0: And you write that modernists are often hailed as the originators of the birth of cool. So can you tell us what exactly was a mod, and how was dressing central to your identity as a
2: mod? I think it, again, it was linked to the music. Of course, you know the 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 the, the, the Teddy Boys, you know, had their rock and roll, and, and mods as as I remember growing up was ver- were very into kind of uh, the new um sort of beat music from the english shores and um you know the liverpool sound the beginnings of the beatles etc and um the kinks and uh you know th- th- those kind of band- dave clark five and those sort of band- they were the bands that influenced me and their sort of look influenced me as well I remember when I was um probably uh I don't know what would that be like fourteen or fifteen. I used to go to the local youth i basically i went to although I lived in a village, I used to go to school in a town. There was a local youth club, and this youth club was quite progressive and they and they would have you know guest uh djs and people to play music there and I remember hearing soul music for the first time. And blues, because you couldn't hear it on the radio in in England. But I remember hearing it at this youth club and thinking, "Whoa!" And then and seeing these kids dancing to it, and I wanted to dance like that, and I wanted to look like that, because I think just just rewinding slightly, um, the whole modernism thing and the birth of cool was a, an amalgamation of, of of Americana, Ivy League. And the Italian slimline look, uh, a Roman look that that all kind of came together. And there was a lot of interest in that style as a reaction to the Teddy Boy style. And it was seen a lot around London streets and in fashionable shops. Uh, But I was a little bit too young for that. I mean, I, I think in 19, I think it was probably 1959 or 1960, I did have an Italian jacket. And that was my introduction into oh and winkle boot winkle picker shoes very pointed toe shoes which was very much a part of that look with skinny little jeans and this short crop jacket and i begged my mum to buy this this pair of shoes for me i'd seen which were really horrible color they were like a tan a yellowy tan but i loved them and, uh, and i got quite big feet, so they looked even more extreme with my skinny legs. And, and that was me. That, I was, I was, from then on, I was a mod.
0: And these tailor-made suits are very much part of that look as well. And um, kind of this immaculate style of dressing, you write that mods needed to be exclusive, elitist, energetic, and immaculate at all times. And how much of this is about the way you looked and how much of it was part of this lifestyle of being a mod? Are the two really interchangeable?
2: I think they're both interchangeable. I mean, it's, it's totally it was it was a lifestyle thing. I mean, I as as I left school and, and, and work, got to got a job, then I was able to avor, afford the, the tailor made suits. And let's not forget, I mean, you know, at that time you could buy a tailor made suit for two weeks wages basically and so i just saved and saved and worked overtime and did whatever i could and so i was able to buy a, 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 a you know it, it took i think it took four weeks to to make a suit and so it was like a really big thing you know you'd go along to the tailors you get measured up and uh, you know put your deposit down and you and you get and get your suit four weeks later so by not spending money on other things i was able to buy the accessories and the, you know the 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 shirts and the ties and the shoes and so on and i would go to clubs and listen to the music and basically i just that was it that was my life i just wanted to be you know that that person in in that moment of time at that club wearing that suit and listening to that music and dancing and we did it all weekend long, if, if we could afford to, or if, if there was something going on. And if there wasn't a club happening, there would be a party somewhere. And it, it I don't know, it just, it was, yeah, it took over my life, really.
0: Yeah, it's one thing to be a fashion historian studying the subculture, but it's another thing entirely to have lived and breathed it. So thank you for sharing your experience with us.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> I would love to see images of this young Roger out on the town.
2: You, one
0: or two <laughs> <laughs> we will hear more from roger after a brief sponsor break welcome back dress listeners roger so the beginning of the end of mod culture starts to happen around the mid-1960s and as with a lot of these subcultures Once the style really starts to spread and get picked up by the mainstream, it loses its power and is abandoned by its originators. And you write that the purist mods turned away from the mod culture. Some of them turned to the hippie counterculture, but others like yourself went an entirely other direction, choosing instead to adopt old gangster style suits from the 40s and 50s. And this is a style that you say was decidedly anti-hippie. So why was this an important distinction for you to make back then?
2: (laughs) it was a funny time it was it was i mean obviously these these things don't happen overnight it it gradually you know the hippie thing gradually seeped into into the culture and you know I, I, i kept seeing more and more of these kids around you know wearing robes and having long hair and stuff and i thought i don't want to look like that i don't you know i'm hip i'm a i've got short hair i've got you know I, I wear a suit or or you know smart jeans or you know casual wear or whatever and i i don't want to suddenly kind of turn into one of these hippies um i was very influenced by the music i love i started to really really love the music and i guess i did start to become a little bit more kind of casual mm-hmm. but then i i used to follow this band around called family and they a, a, almost as a publicity stunt started to wear uh like gangster style clothes and i thought wow wow that, no I, I could do that you know i can i mean that's that that's a look i want to get into so i started to wear that sort of look as well i even bought a gangster style 1930s car with whitewall tires and so on. it was still very very antisocial because, I, like I said, I don't, I don't think this happened in in America. But in, certainly in this country, in England, you didn't wear secondhand clothes. Nobody wore secondhand clothes. It was like a real sort of, um, it, you know, you, you 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 were very very poor if you had to wear secondhand clothes, and so wearing them as a as a kind of chic fashion item was like a real statement. And also, it was kind of dressing up. It ran alongside the whole hippie thing. And and there was a bit of crossover, of course. You know, one would probably, you know, wear a kind of floral scarf with it or something. Or, it, you know, it wasn't entirely kind of um, suited exactly as, as, as the gangsters used to wear. Although it was quite a lot, I have to say.
0: Yeah, and you spoke to kind of this shift in perception of secondhand clothing that's happening during the 60s and into the 70s. You actually... Built your career off of this change in attitude towards appreciating not only secondhand clothing but the special vintage clothing. And is this around the time that you started to open your business? Was it in the nineteen sixties?
2: Yeah. Well, what happened was because of because of this this interest in vintage clothes from the from the twenties, thirties, forties. I I actually um uh had left working uh, on the farm I'd got a job in a factory I was earning like you know quite good money but I, I ended up leaving leaving that and I thought you know I want to do something on my own I want to be like a freelance character I want to you know be a, a free mover as it were and so I, I started um, doing kind of all sorts of odd jobs. Um, I don't know, doing people's gardens and, you know, helping out, you know, DIY things around people's homes and stuff. And what happened was my my mum was still living in the farmhouse, but we basically we had to sell the farmhouse and she wanted to downsize. My sister had left home and so on. And we had all this furniture that, um, you know, one – has, has gathered over the years in the farmhouse for antique stuff and I started to restore it because I knew it had to be sold and um, I ended up having like a market stall And and buying and selling this stuff. I got really interested in in the antiques and um, um, Stuff from the 1920s and 30s like objects for the home, you know art deco art nouveau and that sort of stuff and it kind of went alongside with the clothes and uh, before i knew it i the shop had turned it uh, the stall had, had the market stall had turned into a shop and um, by 1969 68 69 i was actually you know dealing in clothes and uh, lifestyle things for for the home um, you know as i said art nouveau and art deco and things from the 1950s and the clothes became more and more popular. Uh, I was selling them to London dealers and um, students from around my hometown in Leicester and stuff. And it, be, it it became quite a big, big thing, basically.
0: Yeah. And you actually started working with film productions as well, right? You loaned clothes to the film, the cult classic Quadrophenia in the 1970s.
2: That's right. Yep.
0: Well, before we go today, Roger, uh, I have to know what is your favorite piece in the collection. I have to say, after looking through your book, mine has to be the nineteen forties patchwork tailor apprentice suit. <laughs>
2: that's very, that's really interesting. You should pick up on that because I think it's my favorite as well. Actually, it's
0: wonderful.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's a uh, it's an extremely unique piece. Um, You know, of of all the kind of fashion historians I've spoken to, nobody has ever seen a full size one. They were not uncommon as a half size that uh, an apprentice, a tailor's apprentice would make at the end of his or her apprenticeship. Uh, They would have to make a a scale model uh, suit, a, a half size model from all the scraps of material that laid on the floor of the tailor's shop. And then they would be put in the window of, of, of the tailors to say that uh, whoever it is, Joe Bloggs, Fred Smith or whatever, has, has served his apprenticeship, is now a master tailor. But this particular suit was a full-size suit. And when I bought it in the 1970s, it, it had actually been worn. So to think that this this suit had probably, you know, been worn in the 1940s was just, whoa. I mean... What kind of a character would wear that suit unless they're on the stage or something?
0: I know. It's wonderful. It reminds me of the patchwork suits that, of course, come into fashion or style, I guess, in the 60s and early 70s. You see those suits. But for it to be from the 1940s was is pretty remarkable. Absolutely. Well, that takes us to the t- end of our time together, but not to the end of Roger's book because that book continues to celebrate street style into the 60s, 70s, and 80s, highlighting such subcultures as the hippies and the punks. So be sure and get your hand on a copy of this incredible feat of research and heart rebel threats. You will not be disappointed. Roger, thank you so much for being here today. My pleasure. Yes, thank you, Roger. Well, that takes us to the end of our time today. Day, but not to the end of our time with Roger. Because guess what, April? He's coming back. In just two days for a very special bonus episode. That's right, because while today we discussed his
1: collection ranging from the 1940s all the way to the 1960s, his book celebrates street style into the 1970s and into the 80s, highlighting such subcultures as the hippies and the punks. And it's the punks in particular, perhaps, you know, the most aggressive and expressive youth subcultures in history that... Roger has a particularly fascinating relationship with, and we're going to talk to him about that on Thursday.
0: Yeah, and he himself was not a punk, but it is his collection of and interactions with two of the most famous and innovative contributors to punk style, Vivian Westwood and Malcolm McLaren, that will form the basis of Thursday's episode. So tell your friends and tune into this special behind-the-scenes fashion history story.
1: That does it for us today, dress listeners. Please be sure to get your hands on a copy of Roger's book, Rebel Threads, and may you consider your inner fashion rebel next time you get dressed.
0: For images accompanying each week's episode, please follow us on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast. This is also our Twitter handle. You can follow us on Facebook at Dressed Podcast without the underscore. And we really do love hearing from you. So if you would like to email us, please do so at dressed at howstuffworks.com. For additional readings for each week's episode, check out our show notes
1: at dressedpodcast.com. And don't forget about our merch store as always, which is at tpublic.com forward slash dressed. That's t-e-e-public.com forward slash dressed, And as always... Special thanks to our producers, Casey Pegram and Holly Fry, and everyone else at How Stuff Works who makes the show possible each and every week. Catch you soon. Bye.